0: All right, well, you can turn in your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 3. We are going to be finishing up this passage. We're actually going to start back in verse 10 and go through verse 18 to close this out. And so if you don't have your Bible, we recommend the YouVersion Bible app, which can be pulled up on your smartphone or tablet Uh, as well. It'll be in the outline that we hand out and on the screen so you can follow along. Once again, that will be 2 Peter chapter 3 beginning in verse 10 today. We're going to kind of do some review, and in fact, a lot of this, if you've been with us through this series, is um, going to kind of be review. It's going to kind of sound familiar. Um, If you're new with us and you want to kind of catch up on this series, you can go to our current series page on our website, and you can pull them up and get caught up. They're also on YouTube and kind of archived through that. We would love to have you um, kind of go back and get caught up and learn from um, Peter's letter to this group of dispersed Christians. I kind of wanted to set us up for kind of what we see in this scripture, and, and really, as I was putting my message together this week, a couple of things came to mind, and I'll mention that in just a moment. But one was, um, I was on Facebook, and a pastor friend of mine was actually asking for some help as he writes his second book And in the the post, he had asked people to essentially answer a question that was going to aid him in writing this book. And that question was essentially, what's the biggest obstacle to someone finding or maybe maintaining happiness? What's the one thing um, that, that you could think of that would be an obstacle to someone's happiness? Now, um, if you look at the post, there would be multiple different answers, but the very first answer that someone said isn't necessarily like the, the big overall answer that might encompass all the answers that you might expect, but the first answer was a v- very good answer, and that was this, unfulfilled expectations, unfulfilled expectations expectations. When someone has an expectation of something and it goes unfulfilled, that could be an obstacle to their happiness. In fact, the reality is, is people have expectations. We all do. And when they go unfulfilled, it can disrupt Our mood; it can disrupt our happiness. Um, It it, it can really put us in a bad place because we've got these expectations. We think this is going to happen; it doesn't happen, and so it bothers us. It affects us. Well, oftentimes, a big contributor to um, expectations going unfulfilled is simply the fact that they weren't communicated. Whether that be, um, especially in relationships, whether it be marriage, friendship co-workers, even in the church. There can be expectations, and when they aren't communicated, when they're not made known, that can be a major contributing factor to them being unfulfilled. I wonder if you've ever been there, maybe in your marriage, or maybe with a friendship, maybe in a work situation where um, there was an expectation of you or put on you, and uh, it went unfulfilled primarily and mainly because you didn't know what those expectations were. They were kind of um, uncommunicated. They weren't expressed to you. Maybe that person um, had an expectation of what you would do or what you would say or maybe how you would react in a certain situation. And when you didn't meet that expectation, it led to some conflict. It led to some maybe relational fallout. Well, this even happens in the church. We, we've seen it in our church. We've seen it in other churches. Other pastors have expressed the same thing, where people will have an expectation of the church, that the church would do a certain thing, that they would do more of what they wanted or more of what they were passionate about. In fact, one um, youth leader, kind of guru, his name's Doug Fields, he wrote a book called The PDYM um, Book purpose-driven youth ministry book. And in it, he talks about the pressures that student pastors face, even from parents, because you have parents who want more kind of activities for their kids, and you want, you got parents who want more discipleship for their kids, and you got parents who want this and want that. And there's this expectation of the student ministry becoming all about fun and games and, and all of these things, or being all about discipleship and no fun and no games. And the moment that you do something fun, it's like, or is my kid learning, the Bible. Um, And so there's these expectations that can be put on a student pastor, and yet we want to be balanced in our approach to all things that we see in Scripture, but there can be that pressure, that expectation of the church should be doing this, the student ministry should be, be doing this. And so we see it in relationships. We see it in jobs. We see it in every place. And unfortunately, when those expectations go unfulfilled, people are unhappy. In most situations where expectations are unfulfilled, the whole situation could be resolved with a simple conversation, with a simple, with, with simple communication, uh, expressing what is expected, and then maybe taking that relationship a little deeper and um, really ex- examining and really looking at, are these expectations realistic? Because if they're unrealistic, then maybe we need to make some compromise, Well, because God is a good and loving father, he doesn't leave us guessing at what he expects from his children, what he expects from his people. In fact, he calls us to a life that glorifies him. We, we talk about this in uh, as a church. One of our core values is God's glory, that everything we do is for the glory of God. We've seen that through First and 2 Peter, that um, we want to live our lives in such a way that God is glorified. But this isn't just a suggestion. This is an expectation given to us by our Father. He, he doesn't just give us this abstract target to, to aim for or this goal to reach without really defining it for us and we just have to figure it out. It's just abstract because if it were abstract, then um, as we've talked about before, there is absolute truth. If the goal, if the target for a godly life was abstract then what you think is right and what you think is true would be true and what someone else thinks is right and what they think is true would be true. And the reality is, is for us as as people, as humans, is what you think is true and what I think is true and what someone else thinks is true is going to conflict with one another because we're going to go based on our emotions and our, on our feelings and our mood and our happiness and our expectations And so, that just can't be. So, we need a God. We need a true and living sovereign God who is in control of all things, who sets the pace for us and sets the goal for us, who sets what is true and what is not true for us, so that we all have the same goal. We all have the same target to aim for so it's not abstract, it's very detailed, and he gives it to us not only in First and 2 Peter, but all throughout Scripture. He wants you to know what to aim for. He wants you to know what a godly and pure and holy life looks like. You do not have to figure it out on your own. So last week, Peter said that in the last days, there would be these scoffers who scoff. That's what scoffers do, they scoff. Um, <laughs> Essentially, a scoffer is a mocker. So scoffers mocking Christians that Jesus hasn't returned yet. Maybe those scoffers have some unmet and unfulfilled expectations of God. Maybe that's why they are bitter and they mock. Or maybe it's just that they're not followers of Jesus. And so therefore, they do not have the Holy Spirit guiding their life. But in the last final verses of last week's sermon, Peter wrote the following, verses 10 through 13. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness. What did he say there? That it will be clear. It should be clear. He he doesn't make it abstract. It is made clear and made known to us that we should be in holy conduct and godliness. Verse 12. As you wait for the day of God and hasten its coming. Because of that day, the heavens will be dissolved with fire and the elements will melt with heat. But based on his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness Dwells. You can write this down. God expects his children to live holy in our conduct and character. God expects his children to live holy in our conduct and character. Jesus' return will be sudden and it will be unannounced, just like a thief breaking in and entering. A thief doing what a thief does. He doesn't alert you. He doesn't tell you. He doesn't notify you. He doesn't say, hey, on Friday when you're out to dinner, I'm going to break in your home. You go to dinner, you think everything's going to be okay, you come home, your home is broken into because that's what a thief does. It's sudden, it's quick, and it's unannounced. Well, that's what scripture says, that the return, that the Lord's return would be as a thief. And then he tells us that the heavens will pass away and the elements will be burned and dissolved. The earth and all of its works will be revealed. Nothing will be hidden. It will expose all of the works of the earth. It will expose all things. And then he says the way that God will dissolve the current heavens and earth is to serve essentially as a sign to Christians about the kind of life God expects us to live. See, He'll dissolve all of the elements, the Bible says, with fire, because in Scripture over and over and over again, as he dissolves the elements and as he dissolves the old earth and the old heavens, um, that, that is the, the fire, the use of fire is for purification. That's what he's doing. Because if you look at Romans chapter 8, you will see that even the earth was subjected to the curse of sin. The, the earth didn't do anything. But, but because mankind sin, because you and I rebelled against God, that is why we have earthquakes, that's why we have natural disasters, that's why we have disease and pestilence and all of these things. Like, we don't have to wonder why God would allow something to happen. What we have to do is look at our own lives and say, why would we um, rebel in such a way that would cause the world to fall apart like this? Like, what is so um, desirable about this sin? What is so desirable about this lust? What is so desirable about this lifestyle that I would engage in it and cause the world to have such corruption and such um, cursing that there would be earthquakes and fire, there would be floods like in Kentucky, there would be all of these things that are subjected to mankind and to the earth because I have to have my way, because I have to have my pleasure. We are the cause of those things because we sinned and we rebelled against God. And so, Um, the scripture tells us that um, all of those things will be um, dissolved, the, the elements with fire to purify because mankind has been corrupted with sin. The earth has been corrupted and cursed by sin. And so all of that will destroy the old heavens and earth to purify it. And then God expects here, what he says is the way that he does that, the way that that will be dissolved. Why? because it purifies with fire. So, so he's telling us, I'm going I'm to purify these things. I'm going to destroy it with fire. And that should be a sign. That, that should show you, it should make clear what kind of life you should be living, what kind of conduct you should have as followers of Jesus, as my children. And so God expects his children to live holy in our conduct and reflect, reflect godliness or Christ-like character as we wait for Jesus' return. He says, look at how I'm going to purify all of creation. L- look at how I'm going to destroy the elements, and that should make clear what kind of life I want you to live. Because I'm going to purify those things, I expect that you live a pure life. Because I'm going to bring about righteousness, I expect you to live a life that is guided in righteousness. Romans 12, 1 through 2 tells us, brothers and sisters, In view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, get this, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. I love this because your true worship, he didn't say, is coming in and saying all the right words to the worship song. That is a part of worship. It's not going out and even and doing service projects. It's not giving a bunch of money. It, all of those things are aspects of worship, but he says what true worship is, what, what worship that, that is um, pleasing to him, what is holy to him, is when we give our whole selves to him, our whole bodies to him, our minds, our wills, are our pleasures, like, like when we lay ourselves down, when we die to ourselves in order to live in a godly way, to live a pure life, to live according to righteousness, to, to live in holiness, to choose those things over what appeals to our flesh. He says that, that is our true worship. That is what is holy and pleasing to God. Then verse 2 says, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good, pleasing, and the perfect will of God. See, see we can't keep dabbling in the things of the world, the, the, the things of sin, the things that appeal to our flesh. We can't keep giving over to those things and have a mind that is renewed and have an understanding of what is good and pleasing and perfect What is the perfect will of God? We must submit our thinking. We must submit our mind and our will to God, to the Holy Spirit, to the things of God. We must allow him to have our minds renewed. Why? That is how we know the perfect will of God. That is how we do what is good and pleasing to him. Why? Because that's what he expects of us. He makes it very clear. It's not abstract. It's not just out there that you've got to figure it out. So the Christian's hope, he then went on in 2 Peter three ten through 13, that the Christian's hope is God's promise of, a, of new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells, a perfect home, a perfect resting place, a place that we can look forward to that is far greater than any suffering and any difficulty that we face here on earth. And so then he goes on in verse 14, picking up where we left off last week. And he says this, therefore, dear friends, while you wait for these things, make every effort to be found without spot or blemish in his sight and essentially at peace. So once again, he's making it clear to us, but the phrasing be found is consistently used in multiple different uh, Bible translations um, apart from the CSB, which we're in. Um, it's in the KJV. It's in the ESV. It's in the NLT. And I stopped there. I didn't have time to keep looking at all the Bible translations to see if the wording's the same, but it's exactly the same to be found. And, and so Peter is telling us what kind of condition that we should be found in when the Lord comes back, when he returns, like, like when he comes to get us. He's. It, it's kind of like when you leave and when you uh, maybe leave your teenager at home or maybe your child's old enough to leave at home or or whatever, maybe it's your husband with a honey-do list, I don't know, but um, you leave and you say, when I get home, I want this house to be found in this way. I want you to be found doing your homework. I want this to be essential. When I come home, this is what I want to experience. This is what I want to see. And so that's what you would expect, Right. That's, that's, you're making your expectations clear. If you didn't say those things and you come home and the house isn't clean, the honeydew list isn't done, they're not doing their homework or whatever, can you really get upset if you haven't expressed those expectations? Uh, No, not really, unless it's been expressed in other times and other places. And so here scripture tells us that we should be found. He's expressing that expectation of when the Lord comes back, this is the condition that I want you to be found in. This is what I want to see from you. And so there's a couple of things that are true within this statement. Number one, you must be found where he says you must be found without spot or blemish. Um, The the reality is here, (laughs) you can't achieve being without spot or blemish on your own. You don't save yourself. You can't cleanse yourself. Like You cannot achieve this position on your own. You can do your homework if your mom tells you to do your homework. You can clean the house if you're told to clean your house. Like You can do those earthly things, but this very beginning, be found without spot or blemish. I'm mixing the words. Um, You can't do that through your own abilities. In the same way, you can't achieve peace. He says, um, at the end of that, at peace. So so he wants us to be found at peace. He, He does not want you to be found overwhelmed by anxiety, overwhelmed by all of these pressures of life. Just that alone, being at peace and having peace of mind, could change the way that you approach your life. You know, if you're out and and it's it's always buying new things or you're overwhelming yourself with debt, then we go through a recession and we go through inflation and it's very difficult just to put food on the table, but you got all this debt weighing on you. Do you think you're going to be at peace? No, you're going to have anxiety. You're going to have worries. You're going to have fears. You're going to have fears that you're going to get kicked out of your house. You're going to have fears that you're going to lose your vehicle. Like You'll be overwhelmed with anxiety and worry. So even this alone, the expectation of the way that we should be found when the Lord returns would even look at how we spend our money, how we purchase, how we approach debt, and all those things because um, we are being consumed with anxiety and worry in our culture. But he says when the Lord comes back, he wants his people to be at peace. I wonder how we can help other people achieve peace when we're not at peace, when we're consumed by worry, when we're consumed by anxiety and all of those things, when our mind is so consumed with the things of the earth and our status on the earth that we can't even truly worship God and we can't truly be at peace because of the things that we've kind of put ourselves into relationships or uh, fears because we don't trust the sovereignty of God. And so what's going to happen to my child? What's going to happen to my marriage? What's going to happen to all these things? Because I'm really putting that weight on myself or I'm putting that weight on the doctors. And so I can't be at peace. But the reality is this ultimate peace cannot be provided by you. It can't be provided by the things of this earth. It can't be provided if like your debt to income ratio is like the best in the world. You still won't have ultimate peace because ultimate peace is found in a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so he says, my expectation is for you when the Lord returns to be at peace to be without spot, to be without blemish. The only way that that can be achieved is through Jesus Christ. You cannot save yourself. You cannot cleanse yourself. You can't remove the stains and effects of sin from your own life. Jesus saves you, and he makes you new, and then the Holy Spirit helps mature you. Um, Philippians 1.6 says, I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Jesus started the work of your salvation. He completed the work of your salvation, and he is the one that will continue that good work in you until the day of Christ Jesus, until uh, he returns. Jesus saves us. But see, sometimes we feel like, okay, great, I couldn't save myself. I know, I couldn't get rid of all those sins myself. I couldn't get forgiveness for those things myself. But, but somewhere along the line, we feel like, okay, Jesus saved me. I get that. I understand that. But then I need to pick up this weight of my maturity and my spiritual growth. and my That's called sanctification. Sanctification is being sanctified, um, being made in the image of Jesus. It's that spiritual growth and that maturity somewhere along the line, we feel like I've got to pick that up and I've got to achieve that on my own too. I couldn't save myself, but I can grow myself. Like we don't see that in scripture. I can give you verse after verse, after verse, after verse. And so we take this weight on ourself. And And, and the reality is, is just like we fall short in our salvation, we will fall short in our sanctification. We'll fall short. We'll get it wrong. We won't get it right. And, and so There is a role that we play in our sanctification. There are things we can do, but it is the Holy Spirit that will mature you. It is God who will grow you, not, he doesn't put that weight on you. The one who started the good work in you will complete it until the day of the Lord Jesus. So your responsibility would be this, yield yourself to the Holy Spirit for help and power. How many days do you get up and you face life on your own? You face school on your own. You face the troubles of the world on your own. What you're telling God, and when I do that, what I'm telling God is, I got it. I can do this on my own. I can figure it out on my own. I got enough wisdom to get through the day. I got enough strength to get through the day. I got enough faith to get through the day. I don't need you. So your responsibility and your spiritual growth is to get up and go, I'm powerless to do this on my own. (laughs) I don't have enough wisdom to do this. I tried this yesterday and it didn't go very good. I tried this I've tried this for years and I fall short. And so your responsibility is to get up and to humble yourself and to go before God and say I need the help of the Holy Spirit today. He sent us a helper to indwell us and to live in us to enable us to live a godly life. And so God, I can't do this today. I'm going to be overwhelmed by anxiety. I'm going to be taken by fear. God, I need your help. I need your power through the Holy Spirit to make it through the day. The second thing you can do is commit to being in God's presence through prayer and Bible study. So, so it's not trying to figure it out on your own, but it's spending time in prayer to know the will of God, to hear from Him. That, that's what the Bible is given to us for. It's not so we can just write ourselves into the Scripture and have some very inspiring verses that will get us through the day. It's to look through God's Word because He speaks through His Word. He has given us his full revelation through the Scripture, and so we we meet with Him. We are in His presence through prayer. Bible study. And then we commit to being taught God's Word. We see this as early as Acts chapter 2. As soon as Christ had um, been uh, ascended into heaven and we see the gathering of the saints together, they devoted themselves daily to the teaching of the apostles. And the apostles were teaching what Christ had given them to teach in the Old Testament Scriptures. And so your role and your responsibility in your spiritual growth is to commit yourself to put yourself under godly teaching, whether it be through Sunday morning, whether it be in community groups, whether it be through podcasts or other personal devotions and and Bible study, but you commit to being taught God's word by godly teaching. Individuals by spiritually mature individuals. The other thing you can do is devote yourself to fellowship with other believers. That's why we do community groups, because we iron sharpens iron. We inspire one another. We help one another. We pray with one another. We hold each other accountable. We challenge one another. Hey, where do you get that belief? Where do you get that understanding? Where is that found in scripture? And so community, God designed us for community. Once again, we see it in Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. They met daily. When they had needs, what did the Christians do? They didn't have to come to the overall church. They met that need within their own group to the place that they sold their personal possessions. They sold their land. They sold their cattle. They sold what they had when someone in their church and in their fellowship had a need. And so when there's a need and that person's doing everything they can do to meet that need, the body of believers comes together and goes, you know what? I got an old Xbox I can sell. You know what? I got an extra car sitting out in the yard that I could donate. God's blessed me with a, a, an extra TV I don't need. I could, I could sell that and I could take that money and I could help that need. See, our responsibility is to devote ourselves to fellowship with other believers. I learn from people in my community group because when we're looking at scripture and we go, oh, this is what God's word says, or we're watching a right now media video and the the teacher teaches a scripture and then someone says, hey, this is how I had this lived out in my life. This is how I experienced God in, in my life in this area. This is how I've seen this truth really kind of blossom in my life through this scenario. And then it, it, it inspires the rest of our faith. Why? Because God worked in their life. It's the same God that can work in my life. And so we grow by fellowship with other believers. We choose obedience to God, avoiding the sin that grieves him, that destroys our soul. We saw in this that we have a an enemy that, that's like a roaring lion, lion seeking whom he may devour. He does that through temptation. He does that through lust. He does that in multiple different ways. And we need to choose obedience. We need to choose godliness, not to be conformed to this world, but to allow our minds to be transformed. 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16 says, Also, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our dear brother Paul has written to you according to the wisdom given to him. He speaks about these things in all his letters. You can write this down. God's patience is for the eternal benefit of his people. God's patience is for the eternal benefit of his people. Last week, we learned that Jesus' return isn't delayed because he's unfaithful to his promises, but rather his delay is in mercy towards those he intends to save. His patience is for the salvation of his people. So, So he is merciful. So others will come to faith because he does not desire that any are lost. In verse 14, Peter speaks of a more general patience, though, from the Lord. He doesn't just connect it to the return of the Lord, but it's more general. In fact, some versions use the word throughout the scripture, long-suffering, um, I like that terminology. It's a, it's a little more old school, kind of KJV, um, but I like that terminology um, because it gives this great picture for what a patient's um, not patients like hospital patients, but patients um, is, what it looks like when it's rooted in mercy. It suffers long. It suffers long for us. Like, if we look at how quickly Adam and Eve sinned and how the whole world was... Cursed by that sin. We we see the effects of that sin. We see the spiritual death of that sin. We see their eyes were open and they knew that they were sinners. We we saw we see them hide from God. We see how instantaneous that is. Who are we to think that we can sin and God does not have the right to just kill us on the spot? Like the moment that we sinned in his eyes and we rebelled against him and we made ourselves his enemy where he just could have destroyed us and said, I'm going to start new. He could have just ended us and snuffed out our life because he is God and he could do that. Like, who are we to, to think that we're so great that he would not do that? But yet he hasn't. Why? Because he suffers long even in the face of sin, when we sin against him, when we rebel against him, when we grieve him, he suffers long. He is patient with us in mercy. He gives us grace even in that mercy. That he suffers long for us. Why? So that we will come to saving faith. But not just salvation. Uh, this gives us a broader understanding of the Lord's patience in everything that, that it's, it's intended for the salvation of His people. But, but we also understand that it's broader that, than that. We understand, we, we hear the stories, the miracles, like we've heard from multiple different people, like our very own Brian Hensley. And I told Brian that I was going to use him as an example this morning. Um, he, he should have died in a head-on collision with a tree at 85 miles per hour, high and drunk, and there's no reason. I've seen less severe accidents where people died. I mean, uh, any NASCAR fans here, uh, you remember Dell Earnhardt when he died? I mean, he had all the safety gear. He had all this stuff, and he dies in a, a vehicle that they designed to be safe, even going at 150 miles per hour, um, but it's designed for safety. He dies in that, and then Brian's in a little prelude piece of foreign junk and uh, high and drunk, going the wrong way, doesn't know where he's going, 85 miles an hour and hits a tree dead on, doesn't stop and hits a tree and he's alive. Like that shouldn't be. But by surviving, he had the chance to meet a pastor who also had a brain injury, who shared the gospel. And Brian came to saving faith in Jesus because God's mercy and his patience with him When he would get high and drunk and get kicked out of school and go to jail and all these things, like God could have just said, you know what, I'm done with you. But he was patient with him and he was merciful to him. Why? For his salvation. And so in his patience, his patience was mercy for Brian's salvation. God's long suffering had eternal benefits for him. But if you know Brian's story, and most of you do, he's hardheaded like some of you don't know Brian. And so you hear, we all are, that was my next statement. We all are, but some of y'all don't know Brian. You don't know he has a traumatic brain injury. So sometimes you hear someone say things like, that's my jam or Hey Nick, or I love you, Alicia, those type of things. He has a traumatic brain injury. That's why I, saw, I have to ignore him. I One time did a message where I was reading through song lyrics, and he starts singing them. I was like, okay, Brian, that's enough. And I could still hear him whispering the song lyrics. He's still singing it because it gets in his head, and it's, it's broken, and so it just keeps going. We love Brian. So now you have an understanding when you hear someone go, he woos like uh, Ric Flair, and if you're under 30, you might not know who that is, um, we love Brian. He's the life of our church, but he's hard headed. And so just because, there we go, just because he survived this accident, it didn't necessarily wake him up because he kept drinking. And if you've heard his story, you know, in fact, he tells me I can tell his story better than him because every time he goes to tell his story, he's like, hey, Nick, I'm going to Thompson, tell my story. You want to go? And I'm like, Brian, I've heard it a thousand times. I can tell your story. So sometimes I stand in for him. But he kept drinking. And in one instance, he got drunk, he fell, he busted his head open, bleeding everywhere. He could have killed himself. And yet, the Lord was patient, the Lord was merciful. Philippians 2 12 through 13 tells us, Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. See, there is an expectation that we work out our own salvation. Not that we work it out to earn it, but when we have it, we work it out. Like you already have muscles. You were designed with muscles. You work them out to grow it you don't work out to get them. Like you already have your muscle mass. You already have saving faith. You've already been given salvation. He says, with fear and trembling, I want you to work it out because that's how it's going to grow. That's how it's going to mature. There is an expectation of us taking the faith that's been given to us and to work it out, to use it, to put it into practice. Verse 13 says, for it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. So, you're going to work out your salvation, but who's going to do the work? Not you, God. You're going to be faithful. You're going to to kind of do what he calls you to do, but who is going to do the work in you to will and to work according to his good purpose? For it is God who is working. And so the Lord is patient towards his children every day. Not because we need salvation again, but because every day we're alive is a day that he intends to draw us near to him and to grow in our Christ-like character. His patience is so we can work out our salvation. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 tells us, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. The God of what? God of peace. Remember, we want to be found at peace. It is through God that we find peace. So now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus is coming. And what does he tell us here? That God, the God of peace is he who sanctifies us completely. Once again, we don't sanctify ourselves. We don't mature ourselves. He who started the good work will finish it Unto completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God was patient with Brian even when he was struggling with addiction to alcohol, not for his salvation because he was already saved, but because his mercy woos us and draws us into his presence, so we'll grow in our understanding of him and we'll be, we'll we'll mature to become like Jesus. That mercy, once again, if you know Brian's story, led him to a men's conference. It at first led him to New Passion Church through a friend's invite. That's why inviting your friends to come to church is important. Brian had already come to faith, but he was still struggling with an addiction. But it was by someone caring enough about Brian that he invited him to church. Brian then took up the opportunity to go to a men's conference where his own testimony was as if it was speaking to him because he was still struggling with alcohol. He was still getting drunk and falling out, hitting his head and bleeding everywhere, almost killing himself. And so that mercy wooed him. That mercy drew him. And in doing so, it led not only to his salvation, but it also led to him gaining freedom over that addiction for good. God's patience led to your salvation. It leads to my salvation, but his patience also helps sanctify us. And that's an ongoing process. He's continuing to grow. I'm continuing to grow. Growth and maturity is a process. The Lord is patient with us in that process. He suffers long while we bump our heads. He suffers long while we get it wrong. He suffers long when we get up in the morning and we think we can figure it out on our own and we can do it on our own. He suffers long in his patience. Then 2 Peter 3 16 through 18, and those getting baptized who need to change, y'all can go on um, and get ready. 2 Peter 3 16 through 18 says, There are some things hard to understand in them. The untaught and unstable will twist them to their own destruction, as they also do with the rest of the scriptures. Therefore, dear friends, since you know this in advance, be on guard so that you are not led away by the error of lawless people, and fall from your own stable position. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Final thing you can write down is this, Christians should be on guard and actively growing spiritually. Christians should be on guard and actively growing spiritually. This is essentially a summation of what we have seen throughout this series. We need to be on guard, and we need to actively be growing spiritually. Uh, Peter's parting words are that reminder to us. Uh, The first thing he's telling us here is to be on guard. Peter admits that some of the writings, even from Paul, who wrote a majority of the New Testament, um, and, and those writings agree with what Peter is writing here I've just given you some of those scriptures but but here he he's admitting that some of what he is writing is hard to understand and what's happening is these corrupt and false teachers are twisting those scriptures and misusing them and so this is one of those reasons why we need just a few things as followers of Jesus one we need, to, we need the help of the Holy Spirit to understand the mysteries of Scripture. There are things that even I, as a pastor, some of you might not believe that. Some of you might think, man, Nick should know all of the Bible. You're wrong. I, I, there's still mysteries. There's still things that I won't know until I stand before God and it's finally revealed to me. But there are things that are difficult to understand. And so, on this side of eternity, I need the Holy Spirit to help me. I need the Holy Spirit to guide me, to open my understanding, to open my mind, to really understand those mysteries, to understand what is being taught. See, the Bible is a historic book. It's not a storybook. It's not just novels. It is a historic book with specific events, specific meanings, and specific applications. It, we can't just look at it from a 2022 American perspective. We can't just look at it from the way that we understand things and the way we perceive things. Some of this was written in ancient Israel, ancient biblical times, that for our thinking and our understanding in our culture and society, we just don't understand. We just, it, like, we really need a historical context and understanding. So we need the Holy Spirit's help. We also need teachers. We need those who will help us to understand those cultural differences, historians to help us understand what was happening in that time, what was taking place in that time. But ultimately, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. Number two, we need the help of pastors and teachers to teach the Bible as it was intended, not as we desire it to be. Trust me, I wish the Bible was intended in different ways at different times in my life. Man, I wish it said different things there's times I wish it wasn't so convicting. I wish there was times it told me what I wanted to hear and not what I didn't want to hear. And so it's important that we understand and that we submit ourselves to be taught the Bible as it's intended, not as we desire it to be, not to fit an agenda. I'm personally thankful to go through books of the Bible verse by verse. We will, we do topics. Um, In fact, we'll do a topical series next. We're going to kind of put on hold our This Is My Story series. We're going to do it. We're doing it at a later date. But we do topical series. But when we do topical series, we're still preaching through the scripture verse by verse. We don't just cherry pick a verse and build a sermon around it. But I'm thankful for that because there are times that things aren't good. There are times that people betray you, lie about you, do other hurtful things to you. And here's the reality especially from leaders and pastors, scripture can be used as a weapon. It can be used to hurt people. It can be used for an agenda. And so I'm thankful that in those times where I want to like do what I want to do and say what I want to say, it's verse by verse. It's the next chapter. It's the next verse. It's the next thing that comes because there is no agenda. I got to preach what God's word says faithfully. It's not what I want to say in that moment. So there are benefits to teaching Scripture as it's intended. Number three, we need spiritual community to be challenged, held accountable, and to help expand our understanding of Scripture through personal application. Just as I said a moment ago, community groups allow us to live out our faith in practical ways. We, The way we look at community groups at New Passion is it's a microcosm of The church. Like everything should happen in the community groups that happens in church. Um, We tell our facilitators if you and your group want to receive communion, receive communion. If y'all want to sing in worship of Christ, sing in worship of Christ. There should be teaching, there should be fellowship. Um, Our our group, every so many weeks, we won't do a Bible study. We'll just hang out. We'll maybe go to dinner or have a game night, just do something to build relationships. We ask our facilitators, if there's a sickness, if someone's in the hospital, to be on the front lines to lead the way in caring for the people in their group, almost like um, individual uh, uh, deacons. Deacons in the church are servants. They serve the people. So when someone's sick. Find out how you can care for them. So, so it's a microcosm of the overall church. It's where you can be known and cared for, where you can belong and people know who you are because as the church grows, you can get lost. And some of you are like, I'm an introvert. I'm good with that. But that's not scriptural. Scripture calls us to be known, to, to be in community with one another. Iron sharpens iron, to grow in our spiritual uh, uh, spiritually, to grow spiritually. I'm sorry. We're called to help one another, to serve one another. to when, when there's a need, to take care of that need with one another. And so today, once again, this might just be a reminder for us. But for some, there may be, need to be a next step. At the end of the month, I've got this on the screen so you can write it down. We're going to have group link. If you're not in a group, the Scripture calls us to be in community with one another. We're told in Scripture, it's an expectation, not necessarily in this passage, but you will see in Scripture, it is an expectation for us to be in community with one another, to grow with one another, to sharpen one another, to be taught and to apply that in our faith. And so group link will be Sunday August 28th, after service. There'll be childcare. There'll be lunch. We make it simple. All you got to do is show up. You don't even have to make a commitment at that moment. We would ask you to, but you can just come and get information. You lose nothing. You get a free lunch. You get a little extra time away from your kids. It's a win-win. But also we do need group facilitators. As the church grows... We need people to facilitate groups. We need people to host groups. Why? Because it's scriptural. Because if if we as a church are going to live this out, then we need places to meet. We need people who can ask questions or turn on a teaching. You're like, hey, I'm not a teacher. And you're talking about uh, teaching God's Word. You might not be able to do that. That's okay. But can you guide conversation? Because we have uh, teaching videos through right now Media with solid Bible teachers that will teach your group, and then we'll even make sure you know how to access the questions. So, all you got to do is go through those questions as a facilitator, as a group. And so, maybe your next step today is to say, You know what? I'm going online, newpassionchurch.com forward slash events, and I'm going to register, newpassion.family, newpassionchurch.com. You can get there from any one of those places, and I'm going to sign up, I'm going to register. I'm going to take that first step. For some of us, maybe it's we need to be on guard with who is influencing us. Maybe we need to make a commitment to be in church on Sundays more consistently, to have our students in student ministry more consistently once they start up this week, to have our children in the children's environment more consistently. Why? Because they need to be taught God's word on their level. They need to understand God's word. They need caring adults to help make sure they understand God's word. And so whatever God is speaking to you, whatever that next step is, as I pray, I encourage you to make that commitment. Maybe it's just to do those things that I talked about, getting up early in the morning and, and yielding yourself to the Holy Spirit. What, whatever it is, as I pray, have that conversation with God. And then immediately after this closing song, we will baptize. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this series. Thank you for the application that we have gained um, through the truth of 1 and 2 Peter. Uh, There's so much that is so timely for us in this modern day that we live. So I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you that you have given it to us and you have made clear your expectations of us as your children and as followers of Jesus because you love us. You're a good father, you're a loving father. And you don't make us just guess or to figure it out on our own, but you have clearly made it known what you expect of us. But then, Lord, you've even made it clear that we can't do it on our own, that you've given us a helper through the Holy Spirit to help us do the things that you expect of us. It's just like salvation. You want us to be saved, but then you accomplished it for us. You sent your only begotten Son so that we might be saved so that we might have life in him. I thank you for the testimony of Brian. I thank you for your faithfulness in his life. But God, I thank you that you are a faithful God and you can do the same in anyone else's life here. So my parting prayer, Lord, is simply this. May we be obedient to you through your word. May we just simply say yes to whatever your word calls us to. And may we place ourselves in positions so that through the Holy Spirit, you will grow us and mature us and sanctify us so that we will look like your son, Jesus. I do pray, Father, that if there's one here that does not know you, that today they will place their faith and trust in you and you alone, that they would call out to you, that they would repent of their sins and that they would trust in Christ for their salvation that they would not leave here without getting that right. We love you. We thank you for loving us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.